Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike, the sound guy. And on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we are broadcasting to you live from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Folks, as you're thinking about what to do on this particular day off for most of you, I want you to do two things. One, make sure that you read some of Dr. King's writings beyond just the I Have a Dream speech. Okay, In particular, read a letter from a Birmingham jail, read some of his works on economics. There's a lot more to the guy than just the sound bites. You know what I mean? Let's not make Dr. King a cliche in 2018. Uh, also, remember that your federal government, through the FBI, ran an illegal surveillance operation on his life and actively tried to convince him to kill himself. So as we talk about, you hear stories in the FBI being besmirched by the president. There are no heroes in Washington. That was an old title from a podcast episode. Go back and listen to it if you need a refresher. On a slightly lighter note, if your time permits, pause the podcast, take a moment, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher if you have not yet. We are only 10 reviews away from having 150, so we're trying to hit the 150 milestone before the end of January. Pause the podcast. I promise we will be here when you get back. Uh, Also, BuzzFeed News is asking folks to recommend to them uh, what they're calling underrated podcasts, what you listen to. So if you like us, hop on Twitter. You'll see the uh, the Fiskamall Twitter account has been retweeting some of the folks who've recommended us to try and boost that visibility. Uh, let BuzzFeed News know that you listen to us as well, if you don't mind. Speaking of that, join the conversation online if you haven't already. We are on Twitter, at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our patrons, we would appreciate your financial support at patreon.com slash fisk that is slash f-s-c-k i did not slip up by trying to say patron and patreon in the same sentence this time uh we're gonna this is gonna be another packed episode y'all so remember we are still trying to get through the 30-ish stories from last episode that i couldn't get to plus the new stuff Uh, I got news for you. We didn't get them all. I've worked in some of what I can, but it's going to be an extended process. Uh, We're going to bypass the the political stuff mostly. I do think it's funny. that. So, of course, you've probably heard about our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, making a comment about shithole countries and why we accept so many people from shithole countries like Haiti, El Salvador, and a litany of countries in Africa. And the guy bragged about it. You know, he actually called people after the fact. There's a story in The Hill where he's on record bragging to his uh, friends because he thought it would play well with the base. So not only does he say we take too many people from shithole countries, he thinks we should take more of them from Norway. Got news for you. Norway people aren't trying to move here most of the time. But then in the same week, it came out that he paid $130,000 to a porn star so that she wouldn't tell people that he had sex with her. Think of how bad the sex must be if that's the case, that you just don't want people to know that that happened. Uh, As that story is coming out, finds out that he's got a non-disclosure agreement with a second porn star that he had sex with. And then just a couple days ago, a third porn star came out and confirmed everything from the first two porn stars. So, look, I don't care that this guy fucks porn stars. That's fine. Not my cup of tea, but if you're into that, great. What I think is hilarious 
is that he gets so much support from evangelicals, people that will have spent their lives in political activism criticizing people like me. You know, when I was the vice chairman for the Wake County Republican Party, several folks on the executive committee went out of their way to have me removed because I was, quote, living in sin, as they would say, because my girlfriend at the time and I weren't married even though we were living together. Now, of course, I suspect the real reason is because she was black, you know, but theoretically you can't know someone's heart. You know what I mean? I'm giving a, a nudge and a wink to Mike as that is going on. But, you know, they also took issue with the fact one of my friends was gay, and they've spent time trying to make the lives of people like me difficult, all the while they are defending this clown show fuck in the Oval Office. And just in the past week, they have had to explain to their kids what a shithole is, what a porn star does professionally, and the entire concept of hush money. That's just been in the past four or five days. That is your family values president for you. I mean, I guess now we should look on the bright side when priests get caught diddling their parishioners and they've given them a payoff. They can say they were acting presidential. I don't know. But that's the political news for the week. So when we get to the Law 140 part in the last section of the today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, the Bundy case and Brady material and that entire concept of Brady v. Maryland. But for now, let's go ahead and jump into the regular criminal justice news uh, in court talk. So this Wednesday... You're going to start with the oral arguments for McCoy versus Louisiana. Uh, this is a case we mentioned back in episode 32, where a guy, we think, killed three members of his ex-wife's family, and the lawyer concluded that the evidence against him was just overwhelming, and it made more sense to admit he was guilty and ask the jury for leniency so he didn't get the death penalty. The defendant insisted that he wanted to make the argument that he was a victim of a police conspiracy and didn't do it at all. So that case now is in front of the Supreme Court to determine whether or not a lawyer has the power to enter or to admit rather guilt on behalf of a defendant who insists to the contrary. I don't know how that case is going to turn out, but my gut is that ultimately that's a decision that has to be made by the defendant. And if you disagree with it, you need to withdraw from the case. But we'll see how that turns out. Uh, also, this isn't really criminal justice related, but the Eighth Circuit has released an opinion upholding Missouri's licensing scheme for hair braiders where they have to perform a thousand hours of barber training and 1,500 hours of hairdresser training. Now, even bear in mind, there's only 2,000 hours in a typical work year. You work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, and then you take out the 12 federal holidays. Um, so you're typically working about 2,000 annually. It requires more than that to become a hairdresser. So on a whim, just because you all know me and you know the type of person I am, I decided to go look and see how many hours of training it took to become a law enforcement officer in Missouri. And you will be shocked, shocked to find that it's half the time, only 1,350 hours of training to become a cop. In general research news, Harvard Law Review has a new law review article out on presidential tweeting and whether or not tweets carry the force of law. Uh, you might remember way back, we talked a bit about Twitter and whether or not Twitter was a, what kind of form you would classify it as for purposes of First Amendment analysis. Well, this takes a somewhat different approach, doesn't look at it from a constitutional perspective, but argues that the legality of a president's proclamations, whether they're on Twitter or some other form, uh, what they say is, quote, shaped and sustained not by judicial enforceability, but by the executive branch's legal culture. 
And they continue on saying, quote, This culture is dynamic, and presidents can reshape it to novel uses of their directive power, but evolution is not unilateral. It is negotiated through interactions between the president and subordinates, often mediated by the media. So what they note, for example, is in the tweets about banning transgender folks from the military, the military was reluctant to implement it right away. They dragged their feet on it or said flatly they weren't going to do it at all. Uh, and they basically made that argument because it came via a tweet as opposed to an actual presidential order. So this Law Review article says, theoretically, tweets could be law if the nature of the executive branch changed in such a way that that became an expectation. But at this point, understood through the lens of how this stuff works, uh, as of today, tweets are not law. So we'll give you that link. It's got a bunch of annotations to it. It's actually really interesting stuff if you're interested in the contours of how social media plays in the governance of our democracy. Uh, I got a couple stories out of the New York Times. They have a piece on the labor market and how it is now making it easier for people with criminal records to find jobs because it's tough in certain segments to actually find employees. Uh, they talk about the case of Mr. Forseth and say, quote, until recently, someone like Jordan Forseth might have struggled to find work. Uh, at 28, he was released from prison after serving a 26-month sentence for burglary and firearm possession. Mr. Forseth, however, had a job even before he walked out of the Oregon Correction Center a free man. Nearly every weekday morning for much of last year, Mr. Forseth would board a van at the minimum security prison outside Madison, Wisconsin, and ride to Stoughton Trailers, where he and more than a dozen other inmates earned $14 an hour wiring taillights and building sidewalls for the company's line of semi-trailers. We've got several cases uh, in Wisconsin, by the way. So this is the only upside to Wisconsin's coverage. Uh, so we'll give you that link so you can read it. Also, there's an editorial by a Patrick Sharkey who links a lot of research on the impact of the decline in urban crime that we've talked about before and how that actually impacts folks. And you're not going to be surprised to hear this, but he's, he finds that the biggest beneficiaries of the crime decline are the most at-risk people in the community. Uh, he writes, quote, Though homicide is not a common cause of death for most of the United States population, for African-American men between the ages of 15 and 34, it is the leading cause, which means that any change in the homicide rate has a disproportionate impact on them. The sociologist Michael Friedson and I calculated what the life expectancy would be today for blacks and whites had the homicide rate never shifted from the level it was at in 1991. We found that the national decline in the homicide rate has increased the life expectancy of black men by roughly nine months. That's huge. When you have a population as large as the United States is, it's very difficult to get shifts in those kinds of life expectancy numbers. That's part of why when you see uh, graphs about how much we spend on healthcare relative to other countries, and then the graph of life expectancy relative to other countries, we do spend a shitload of money. That part is true. But the slow increase in life expectancy is not because we're spending that money inefficiently, although I'm sure in some cases we are. It's because we just have so many more people than everywhere else. You know, compare us to some place like China or Russia or some of these other really large countries population-wise, but comparing us to a place like Spain or the UK when they're just they're, – they're size of like one or two states. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make sense to compare them. Um, they, he continues, the decline in violence on city streets also occurred inside public schools, creating environments where students could learn without fear of being victimized. Analyzing statewide tests of academic achievement, I found that test scores have risen the most – 
and the gap in the average scores of black and white children has narrowed the most in those areas where violence has fallen most sharply. The drop in violent crime has led better-off families to move into poor city neighborhoods, thus reducing the concentration of poverty in urban America. Though gentrification has become a problem in a few prominent places, in most cities there is no good evidence that poor families have been pushed out of their neighborhoods as violence has fallen. In fact, as research I conducted with doctoral student Gerard Torres Espinosa shows, the crime decline has improved the prospects for upward mobility for the poorest American families. We're going to give you that link. He's got a lot of links to other studies within it. So you'll want to check it all out because there's a lot to, to mull over. Uh, out of Pew, Pew has confirmed that the gap, the incarceration gap between blacks and whites continues to fall. They take a look at the latest bulletin from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, they confirm that the gap between whites and blacks incarcerated is half as wide as it was just 10 years ago in 2009. They note that at the end of 2016, there were 486,900 inmates who were black, 439,800 who were white. Now, this covers federal prison and state prisons for states that offer comprehensive data. So we've talked before, there's always an issue where states leave stuff out, but as best as the government can compile, those are the numbers. Uh, what they find is that the total gap has changed because the black population in prison has dropped by 17%, while the white population has only dropped by 10%. So we got, one, we got a lot fewer inmates overall, which is awesome, uh, but you're also seeing that disparity kind of go away. We talked a bit back in episode 42 about an opinion column from the Marshall Project that talked about some of the possible reasons for that. So if you haven't listened to it, go back to episode 42 and check that part out. Uh, the cool thing to know, though, is that your total number of prisoners is down, which is good because that means more people in the community able to be productive citizens, less money spent on incarceration, all good news. Uh, out of Slate, they do a lengthy read on prosecutors who actively obstruct cases from people getting exonerated when they're found out to be innocent, in essence. Uh, they actually highlight 17 of those cases, but there's a lengthy read on it. Uh, what it says in the story, quote, in an adversarial legal system, it's natural to presume that prosecutors and defense attorneys are driven by the same goal, to win, but they aren't. In Berger versus United States, decided in 1935, the Supreme Court famously declared that the prosecution's ultimate goal, quote, is not that it shall win a case, but that justice shall be done. A prosecutor, the court wrote, is in a peculiar and very definite sense the servant of the law, the twofold aim of which is that guilt shall not escape or innocence suffer. Many prosecutors accept this responsibility and, when proven wrong, ask the judge to dismiss a case or settle by way of a plea bargain. But too many do not. Indeed, there is a class of prosecutors that might fairly be called innocence deniers. These prosecutors do not do justice as the Supreme Court defines it. Instead, they delay justice and in some cases actively work against it. When a prisoner is exonerated by a lower court, these prosecutors double and triple down, filing appeal after appeal, or they indict and prosecute the exoneree all over again, sometimes under a wildly different theory, at the expense of time and resources that should be used to pursue the crime's actual perpetrator. It goes on. It's a very long read. It's a very good read. And it's a real problem. I mean, prosecutorial misconduct is as real a problem as police misconduct. Uh, the difference is you just don't see it as often because so many cases get pled out and that's a wrap. There's a tremendous premium 
on speed and efficiency a lot of the times because it all comes down to money. A lot of these people going through the prison system or, or the court system, rather, not getting to prison, um, are there to pay their $180 in court costs, $250 to assorted drug treatment programs, you know, what other fines or penalties get tacked on. It's all the way of funding the government so that the politicians don't have to raise your taxes. Uh, at a Washington Post, there's an editorial by D.C. public defender Jeffrey Stein on innocent people pleading guilty. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's a brief read. You can get through it, but it's so accurate, man. It's just really crazy. Every defense attorney has gone through this at least once, I would imagine. Um, he starts it off saying, quote, The conversation almost always begins in jail. Sitting with your client in the visitation room, you start preparing them for the most important decision the person has ever made. Though the case is just a few days old, the prosecution has already extended a plea offer that will expire within the week. And because local laws might require detention for certain charges at the prosecutor's request, or because criminal justice systems punish those unable to pay bail, your client will have to make that decision while sitting in a cage. Your client is desperate, stripped of freedom, and isolated from family. Such circumstances make those accused of crimes more likely to claim responsibility, even for crimes they did not commit. A 2016 paper analyzing more than 420,000 cases determined that those who gained pretrial release were 15.6% less likely to be found guilty. Not surprisingly, prosecutors commonly condition plea offers on postponing hearings where defendants may challenge their arrests and request release. It goes on from there. I will uh, let you read the whole thing. It's very accurate. And I mean, it's sobering too. I mean, it's, it's accurate and it's sad, but I mean, it's, I've been there, you know, I've been practicing for five years, been there several times. can only imagine that's even more true for public defenders because most of my clients get out of jail before they come to me. It's not true for the public defenders folks. They spend days making jail visits. So we'll give you that story. In uh, federal government news, so the White House had this big to-do on uh, having a meeting on prison reform. It was publicized as this great thing that Jared Kushner is going to put together. Uh, turns out they ended up just jawboning about the need for more re-entry programs. Now, those are definitely important. Don't get me wrong. Re-entry stuff is important and chronically underfunded. But you can solve that problem really easy by just not locking up so many fucking people, not criminalizing so many things. Uh, so we'll give you a link to the write-up on that. Uh, there's also an FBI guy that was whining about the fact that you have access to cryptography and cryptographic stuff to protect your data. Uh, from Vice, says, quote, On Wednesday, at the International Conference on Cybersecurity in Manhattan, FBI forensic expert Stephen Flatley lashed out at Apple, calling the company jerks and evil geniuses for making his and his colleagues' investigative work harder. For example, Flatley complained that Apple recently made password guesses slower, changing the hash iterations from 10,000 to 10 million. That means, he explained, that password attempts speed went from 45 passwords a second to one every 18 seconds. And that's referring to what we call a brute force attack, where basically you, you have a program enter every conceivable uh, version of a password. So like on your phone, it would be, it would go 0000 and then 0001, 0002 and go through all of the iterations until eventually it gets the right one. Uh, your crack time just went down from two days to two months, Flatley said. At what point is it just trying to one-up things and at what point is it to thwart law enforcement? Apple is pretty good at evil genius stuff. Uh, hey, Steven, fuck you. All right. 
the government has no right to any of your information, and that doesn't change whether you're a regular old civilian or whether or not you're a criminal. Makes no difference. The government has no fucking right to what you're doing in your own personal time. And in addition to protecting your stuff from the prying eyes of a government that tends to abuse the authority that it has, if you don't believe me, go back about 20 minutes when we're talking about Dr. King being encouraged to commit suicide by the FBI. It also protects you from hackers and other nefarious people that have the exact same fucking technology the government does, if not better. So I would say Apple, if you're listening, Tim Cook, any of those people, make the cryptography even stronger. Give me more tools if you don't mind, because I need to make sure my stuff is protected. The fact that it's also protected from the government is purely incidental. Uh, Speaking of the government, ICE is now raiding 7-Elevens to find people to deport because we don't have more important problems to worry about. We'll give you that story. And in a classic case of the government being the government, the IRS has paid private debt collectors $20 million to collect past due taxes. How much did they collect with that $20 million investment? Uh, Roughly $6.7 million. Forbes has a story on the new report. They say, quote, according to a new report by the agency's Taxpayer Advocate Service, the outcome is roughly the same as the last two times Congress tried to privatize debt collection. The agency is spending far more on the program than the firms are collecting and remitting to the Treasury. Just as troubling, the reports find the debt collectors were mostly targeting lower-income taxpayers, some of whom are receiving Social Security, a group that was supposed to be excluded from the program. Of the 4,100 taxpayers who made payments after their debts were assigned to private collectors, 1,100, or 28%, had incomes below $20,000. About 5% were receiving SSDI, or Social Security Retirement Benefits. They had a median income of $14,365. The TAS reports that about 1,700 taxpayers were placed in installment payment programs. Even though their incomes are so low, they are unlikely to make the payments, The debt collection firms earned commissions on these agreements, however. So we'll give you that story. In state-by-state news, out of Arizona, in Phoenix, we had talked before, and I can't remember the episode number, it was way back in July, uh, about Corazon or Corizon, whatever you want to call it, the healthcare company that provides healthcare in the jails. There was a settlement reached, and there were hearings about the contours of what that settlement would entail. Well, apparently the settlement hadn't gone according to plan. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, both the state and Corazon have shown pervasive and intractable failures to comply with the settlement and provide better care, according to the federal court judge overseeing the agreement written in an October order. A recent story was revealed that a partially paralyzed man held inside one of the prisons chewed off three fingers on his left hand in a desperate attempt to receive treatment for excruciating pain from previous injuries. He reported that the terrible pain he felt makes everything else seem insignificant. He chewed off parts of the fingers on his left hand because the pain was so unbearable. You got to imagine how fucking painful is the pain that chewing off your own fingers is less painful by comparison. Uh, One woman complained of a mass in her breast and a family history of breast cancer that killed her sister, but Corazon workers denied her a mammogram because she was only 37 years old. Her treatment was delayed for months. They found out she actually did have cancer, uh, and when she was given chemotherapy, all they did was give her some Aleve to manage the pain. Uh, So long story short, this is still going on. There's now an order, or a motion rather, to have this settlement enforced, and we'll, we'll see how that turns out. Uh, But that's a mess. So if you're in Arizona, in a jail, good luck. 
Uh, in California, Reason has a profile on Senator Kamala Harris, who has a long record of defending dirty prosecutors. Uh, from their story, C.J. Saramello is the writer. He says, quote, when a judge removed the entire Orange County District Attorney's Office from a death penalty trial in 2015, after it was revealed in a bombshell memo that the Sheriff's Department had been running an unconstitutional jailhouse informant program, Harris's office appealed the removal. Harris's record at San Francisco as the DA has similar instances. In 2010, a California Superior Court judge excoriated Harris's office for failing to notify defense lawyers of known misconduct by a drug lab technician that later led the San Francisco police to shut down an entire section of the lab. As California Attorney General, Harris continued to display indifference toward concerns of misconduct. In March of 2015, she appealed the dismissal of a child molestation case after a Kern County prosecutor falsified an interview transcript to add an incriminating confession. Her office, citing state court precedent, tried to argue that the prosecutor's actions, quote, was certainly conscious shocking in the sense that it involved false testimony by a prosecutor in a formal criminal proceeding but it did not involve brutal and offensive conduct employed to obtain a conviction. Uh, in other words, the defendant's false confession wasn't being out of him and therefore didn't violate his constitutional rights. The judge disagreed and threw out the conviction. CJ's got a lot more of that type of stuff, but keep that in mind. When I say there are no heroes in Washington, I'm not exaggerating. You know, Kamala Harris has been on Pod Save America, a bunch of other podcasts, as this pioneer of jail and prison reform. And if she can accomplish something with that, great. But let's not overlook the fact that she contributed to it heavily after spending her career as a district attorney and attorney general. Uh, out of Florida, in Jacksonville, Sheriff Mike Williams, <laughs> this guy basically lost his shit. So back in uh, episode 38, we talked about the ProPublica expose where they were deliberately targeting people in Jacksonville to give them pedestrian tickets for crossing the street, even though the way they were crossing the street wasn't illegal. They hadn't broken any laws. Well, the, um, the Times Union, the Florida Times Union, who was the partner with ProPublica on that story, uh, reported that the Jacksonville State Attorney's Office issued a bulletin with new guidance on how to enforce these laws without violating the Constitution. Well, the sheriff issued a press release basically slamming the paper, calling it fake news and everything else. So the paper did a bullet-by-bullet -bullet rebuttal and it's fucking hilarious. Like, at least a dozen of the bullet points just say, see the prior thing, because the sheriff repeats so much stuff over and over again. So we'll give you that link. Read it. You'll enjoy it. Uh, out of Georgia, this is one of the older stories that we didn't get a chance to get to last week in Cartersville. Police said someone had called reporting alleged gunfire outside of a house party that had been basically someone rented an Airbnb through a party for their 21st birthday. Uh, someone, somehow the officers smelled marijuana from the street, which one thing you'll learn if you ever do criminal defense work is that police officers have better noses than dogs. They're so good at smelling marijuana, even when it doesn't exist. Uh, but apparently they found less than an ounce of weed and decided because no one claimed it, that they would arrest all 70 people at the party, ranging in ages from 15 to 31 years old. Most of those folks stayed in jail for at least three days. Several of them lost their jobs. So we give you that story. Uh, in Illinois, we got a pair of stories out of Chicago. Yvette Salazar was detained by campus police at Joliet Junior College because she had the audacity to hand out pamphlets critical of capitalism. 
Uh, from the story, it says, quote, On November 28th, after seeing members of a conservative student group distributing anti-socialism materials on campus, Salazar decided to provide an alternative viewpoint by distributing flyers from the Party for Socialism and Liberation that read, Shut Down Capitalism. After being reported by campus staff, she was detained by JJC police for approximately 40 minutes, interrogated at the campus police station, and told she could not distribute her flyers because of the, quote, political climate of the country. When Salazar asked the officers about her free speech rights, she said one JJC officer told her, quote, if you want to go ahead and post your flyers and burn your crosses, you have to get it approved by the school. Her flyers were confiscated to ensure that she did not distribute them on campus. So we give you a link to that. Just as a sidebar, that's not how the First Amendment actually works. Uh, also in Chicago, Thomas Sierra has been exonerated after spending 22 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Uh, so he is the now the 10th murder conviction that has been thrown out because they involved Ronaldo Guevara. He was the Chicago police sergeant that spent his entire fucking career just framing people because he could. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Cook County prosecutors on Tuesday dropped murder charges against a former inmate who spent more than two decades in prison, marking the latest exoneration linked to alleged wrongdoing by former Chicago police detective Ronaldo Guevara. Thomas Sierra bowed his head and wiped away tears as Judge William Lacey threw out the conviction at the request of prosecutors. You got, you know how much life I have lived in 22 years? You know, 22 years ago, how old was I? God, I should know that off the top of my head. I was 14, so I was a sophomore in high school. So I, I hadn't graduated high school yet, hadn't had sex, hadn't driven a car, hadn't owned a dog, hadn't lived by myself, um, you know, hadn't had a cell phone, hadn't had my own computer, hadn't really used a computer much. I mean, my parents bought one, I think it was my freshman year, that I had to share between both of my parents and two of my siblings. I mean, there's a lot of life that was stolen from this guy, just completely fucking stolen from him. And now, you know, he's out and he's exonerated and that's great. But fuck, how do you make up for that? You know, we try and give these people some money to, to make it better. But 22 years of your life just snatched away is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. So we'll give you that story. Uh, out of Louisiana, the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. In Abbeville, a teacher was arrested in a school board meeting for questioning the pay raise of the superintendent. And of course, it was all caught on video. From the story, it says, quote, the records indicate Deshia Hargrave was booked into the city jail with remaining after being forbidden and resisting an officer. I guess that's a charge, remaining after being forbidden and resisting an officer. Uh, the teacher was booked into jail last night, even though the superintendent told KATC shortly after the meeting that he had called to inform police that the system didn't want any charges pressed. Hargrave, an English language arts teacher at Renee Rost Middle School in Kaplan, addressed the board during the public comments portion of the meeting to discuss teacher salaries and pay raises. After Hargrave posed several questions, board president Anthony Fontana ruled her out of order, warning her that the public comment section was not a question and answer section. Hargrave was called upon a second time for comment after posing another question, and while someone else was talking to her, an Abbeville city marshal on duty at the meeting escorted her out. Handcuffs were later placed on Hargrave in the hallway as she was removed from the building. 
Uh, it also says later on in the story, Ike Funderburk, who is both the city attorney and a prosecutor. I don't know how that works, but we've said before, Louisiana is a floor to ceiling clusterfuck when it comes to criminal justice. Uh, Ike said the marshal who arrested her is a school resource officer who was employed by the school board, and he, quote, was not acting in any official capacity on behalf of the city of Abbeville. Uh, that's bad news for that officer, because when he gets sued for violating this teacher's rights, he's not going to be protected by qualified immunity. Uh, we also went through some of the other stories on this. You'll be surprised, I'm sure, to know that the marshal who arrested her uh, actually has a record for doing this type of shit. From a different story, it says that uh, he's been sued at least once for excessive force. Federal lawsuit claimed that a 62-year-old man accused him of shoving him against a building and slamming the man's head on a concrete slab, fracturing a rib, and requiring six staples for a head wound. The city settled that case. Uh, out of Maryland, the fourth rule of Fisk, The Wire was, in fact, a documentary. Uh, in Baltimore, bail bondsman Donald Stepp has now pleaded guilty. He was the guy that Sergeant Wayne Jenkins and the Gun Trace Task Force was using to resell the drugs that they stole from people. Uh, from the story in the Baltimore Sun, it says, quote, Stepp's plea says the scheme took place between 2015 and 2017, and it revealed that Jenkins brought him to search locations in Baltimore City, Baltimore County, and elsewhere, with Jenkins falsely telling other law enforcement agencies that Stepp was a city officer. Stepp is now the third civilian defendant to plead guilty to helping the officers facilitate their crimes. Now, here's the crazy part. Stepp's arrest was apparently the result of an unrelated investigation by Baltimore County authorities into his drug dealing. He was indicted in December following a raid on his home in Middle River, during which crack, cocaine, and heroin were recovered by police. Police raided Stepp's home just after midnight on December 14th and found the drugs, along with scales, packaging materials, and other items, also located in a desk drawer. This is so fucking idiotic. They found the federal indictment paperwork for Jenkins and two of his co-defendant officers. Like, criminals are dumb, man. Even the ones paid for by the government, they're dumb. I don't understand. So basically, this guy had the paperwork that his partner in crime, literally, was being indicted, and they used that to connect him to the entire criminal organization. It's fucking ridiculous. Also in Baltimore, another first rule of Fisk moment, security guards at a Baltimore hospital were caught on camera wheeling a patient to the bus stop in below freezing weather, wearing nothing but a patient gown. Apparently that's a normal thing for homeless folks in Baltimore. In Montgomery County, a police officer who was using his gun to try and smash a window of an SUV ended up shooting the unarmed driver. The officer's name is Todd Archer, and basically police got a call that an SUV was running into this woman's car. The officers arrived. Apparently, there was the woman's car was stuck up next to a curb blocking a driveway, so the SUV was trying to ram her out of the way. Um, so Archer, quote, got out of his patrol car, approached the SUV, and drew his weapon. It's not clear how well Archer could see into the SUV or why he thought he needed to break the window. Police did not detail the exchange, including any conversation between Archer and the driver, or how much time passed between the officer's arrival and when he began hitting the driver's side window with his gun. The Escalade driver, who was 52 at the time, was hit by one round when Archer's gun discharged. More officers arrived, and they provided first aid to the driver. He was taken to a hospital and treated for what police said were serious, but not life-threatening injuries. Archer, who has been an officer for 10 years with the Montgomery Force, remains on paid administrative leave since November 5th. He will not be criminally charged. I got a pro tip. 
if you happen to be a police officer listening to this, you don't use a gun to smash out a window. Guns serve a purpose, and that purpose is shooting bullets. Uh, that's out of Maryland. In Massachusetts, out of Boston, uh, there's a story on DNA testing services and the fact that your DNA profiles will be turned over to the police if the police show up with a warrant. Uh, out of Nevada in Las Vegas, the case against the Bundys has now been dismissed with prejudice. We will talk more about that in the Law 140. Uh, and in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, Republican Governor Susana Martinez is a fucking nut. She wants to give more immunity to the police. In a uh, story talking about a proposed bill that she supposedly cooked up, she says, quote, I don't believe that police officers should be under this constant threat of lawsuits that will often cause them to pause. If they're following their training, there should be something that protects them. Hey, Governor, guess what? We've got it. It's called qualified immunity. Uh, Martinez, who's entering her final regular session of the legislature as governor, suggested that legislation granting legal immunity to law enforcement officers would protect not just the officers, but taxpayers, too. This bill would protect citizens and law enforcement officers from the massive payouts that taxpayers are giving crooks and thieves who are hurt or injured by police who are doing their job. Ma'am, abusing people is not doing their job. That's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution doesn't say, hey, you happen to be a drug user, so we're allowed to crack your ribs and bust your head open. That's the exact opposite of what the fucking Constitution says, you imbecile. And what do you say about all the innocent people who've been shot and killed? Because guess what? We've chronicled dozens of those motherfuckers on this podcast. God, I know she's running for president, and that's the only reason she's doing this, but I hate it just the same. It's so fucking stupid. So just know, if you happen to be a conservative, when Susanna Martinez runs for president, make sure to vote for someone else. Uh, in New York, out of New York City, so protesters took to the streets to protest the deportation of immigration activist Ravi Ragbeer. Uh, well, it turns out there's a lot of people with cell phone cameras, as you could imagine, at a protest. So you see a lot of NYPD officers just choking people out, putting them in chokeholds, headlocks, etc. All caught on video. All that stuff was supposedly banned by NYPD prior to them executing Eric Garner. Apparently people still don't learn. Uh, also, out of New York City, Village Voice has a long read on Victor Alvarez, who's a homeless guy who's been sent to Rikers Island more than 102 times. Uh, basically, the guy took a plea deal for a drug charge one time, left him on probation. Well, he's a drug addict, so police would just randomly pick him up on a near-daily basis because they suspected he would have drugs on him, and of course he did. Well, rather than ever getting him treatment so he could stop being an addict, they just keep taking his ass to prison. It's expensive and it's stupid, but we'll give you that one as well. Uh, also, out of the Daily Beast, there's a story about the NYPD and a, uh, an anonymous rape victim who happened to be black, a lesbian, and an activist, which means that the NYPD gives zero fucks about the fact she was attacked. From the story, it says, quote, On an afternoon in late April 1994, a young woman was raped in broad daylight in Brooklyn's Prospect Park. Two days later, the biggest columnist in New York City's biggest newspaper called her a liar. The woman, black, a lesbian, and an activist, became the target of a vicious smear campaign by a daily news columnist and sources within the NYPD, who charged that she had made up a hoax to advance a political agenda. Relying on those NYPD sources, future Pulitzer Prize winner Mike McAllery wrote three columns for the Daily News denouncing her as a fraud who, quote, probably will end up being arrested herself. Uh, she said, I have had the misfortune of being raped twice once in the park and again in the media. That's what she told her lawyer, Martin Garbus. 
24 years later, her rapist was identified through DNA evidence, according to the NYPD. On January 8th, police told Jane Doe they had a match with James Webb, a career criminal who'd been sentenced to prison for rape before her assault. Uh, Out of North Carolina, in Durham, I don't often say this, but I'm going to say it. I told you so. So the felonies against the protesters, the patriots who took down the Confederate participation trophy across the street from my office, the felonies have been dismissed. Now, if you go back to the Law 140 section of episode 23, I told you that was going to happen. There was no fucking way the felonies were going to stand. If you happen to be in this area, you should support District Attorney Roger Eccles because he did the right thing by saying that those felonies were going to go away. And if you get a chance to vote in the Democratic primary for sheriff, by the love of God, we need a new sheriff who actually understands the law. So Mike Andrews is the guy who charged these kids with felonies because he's running for re-election and wanted to make a point. He's got at least one primary challenger, a guy named Clarence Burkhead. I hope you will go support him. I don't know if anyone else is going to run. But this type of grandstanding is not how the public's resources should be spent, and it's time for a change of house in the Durham County Sheriff's Office. Uh, Out of Raleigh, the government has settled a lawsuit against former Governor Pat McCrory for violating the state public records laws. From the story, it says, quote, a lack of transparency around public records during the former administration of Republican Governor Pat McCrory has now cost North Carolina taxpayers a quarter million dollars. The state's top elected officials, that's the Council of State, what we call here, voted Tuesday to pay $250,000 to settle a lawsuit brought by the News and Observer, the Charlotte Observer, and others regarding the McCrory administration's actions or lack thereof in responding to public records requests. The new administration of Democratic Governor Roy Cooper also agreed to act more promptly in responding to records requests and disavowed the kinds of records fees that McCrory's administration had been accused of demanding. That's in North Carolina. Out of Ohio in Mason, a teacher threatened to lynch a student if he didn't get back to work. From the story, and this is so this is such a typical school district thing. You know, a white teacher threatens to lynch a black kid, and the response is it was a mistake. Uh, what they say is, quote, an Ohio school district has acknowledged that a teacher made a mistake after a black student reported that he was told he might be lynched. Mason School spokeswoman Tracy Carson says educators sometimes mess up. She says the teacher did not mean to offend the student. Well, what the fuck did the teacher mean? One, threatening to kill a kid is bad enough. There are other ways to motivate a kid to do their work, but threatening a black kid with a lynching? Come on, son. I don't know how many of these teacher stories we've had over the course of the past eight, nine months, and I got at least one more that I know of. So that is out of Ohio. In Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, it turns out officials have been wrongly excluding potential jurors who have any criminal background at all whatsoever. From the story, it says, quote, for at least six years and possibly longer, Philadelphia court officials have wrongfully disqualified individuals from serving as jurors, according to data obtained by the Philadelphia Declaration. And this practice continues today for potential jurors who fill out their juror questionnaires online. In Pennsylvania, people with criminal convictions that carry a maximum possible sentence of more than one year can be barred from jury service. So those are felons. Uh, Those convicted of crimes with lesser penalties, such as most first-time DUI offenses or possession of small amounts of marijuana, are not disqualified. However, for most of the term of Jury Selection Commissioner Daniel Rendine, court officials sent jury summonses asking potential jurors about any criminal convictions and automatically disqualified all of those who answered yes, including potential jurors who are qualified under state law. So some months back, I talked with Anna Marie Cox of With Friends Like These, and uh, Jane Coaston, I think, was our co-guest, talking about 
the bleaching of jury pools, how juries tend to be wider than the population at large because your pool of prospective jurors is taken from a list of property owners and registered voters, both of which tend to favor whites automatically. Then you have situations like this where you're eliminating everyone who has any prior criminal history, which also tends to favor whites more so than blacks. Then you get them in the room. You got people who are able to take off for days at a time from work. Those tend to be more white than black. And then you actually get them in a jury box and attorneys tend to, especially prosecutors, tend to strike black jurors because they tend to be more favorable to the defense. So this is just another piece of that. And this has been going on in Pennsylvania for a while. So it's no surprise that you end up with this disproportionate impact of convictions and sentencing when this is the type of juror pool you get. Out of Tennessee, federal prosecutors have been going after the pilot Flying J. Uh, those of you who live in the southeast, you've probably seen their gas stations and truck stops at some point. But the, the company is owned by the brother of Tennessee's governor. And that same guy also owns the Cleveland Browns, I think. Uh, well, the former president, Mark Hazelwood, they've got him on audio talking shit about the guy that owns the place, as well as using racial slurs all over the place as well. Uh, quote from the story says, quote, the then president of truck stop giant Pilot Flying J made derogatory comments about his boss's NFL football team and its fans and used racial epithets, including requesting his subordinates play a racist country song during a meeting of executives. Where's our greasy N-word song? Former Pilot Flying J president Mark Hazelwood said as he and former Pilot Flying J sales executives were gathered at a meeting. A song by country artist David Allen Coe with a two-word title consisting of a racial epithet and a profanity that describes a white man's upset that his girlfriend had dumped him for a black man could then be heard. Hazelwood, former Pilot Fly J Vice President Scooter Wombold, and former account representatives Heather Jones and Karen Mann have been standing trial since November on wire and mail fraud conspiracy charges in connection with a five-year scheme to rip off small trucking companies by promising them big discounts on diesel fuel in return for loyalty to the truck stop giant, but then paying them far less. 14 former Pilot Flying J executives and account representatives have pleaded guilty. Two others, including Greco, were granted immunity. Pilot Flying J's board of directors has admitted criminal responsibility. But of course, CEO Jimmy Haslam, who's the brother of the Tennessee governor, has not been charged and denies any knowledge of the fraud scheme. You got to imagine your president, your vice president, a shitload of account executives and your corporate board have all acknowledged that they've broken the law. But somehow you're the CEO and you didn't know. That means either you're a really shitty CEO or you're a liar. Uh, out of Cookville, Tennessee, there's not going to be any charges against Cookville police officer Christopher Ferguson. This is the guy that completely plowed through a pair of elderly folks as he was racing to a call from the story. It says, quote, within seconds, James and Rena Cryer's lives changed forever when they were hit by a police cruiser driven by Christopher Ferguson last May. Upon impact, James Cryer was thrown from the vehicle. And he had a seatbelt on, by the way, so he was still thrown from the car. Amazingly, he and Rena survived. After reviewing the video, an investigation conducted by the Tennessee Highway Patrol, District Attorney General Bryant Dunaway declined to pursue criminal charges against either driver. From the story, um, or from the report, rather, from the Highway Patrol, what they say is, quote, if the officer had been driving the posted speed limit, the collision would have been avoided. 
Turns out Ferguson was traveling 26 miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, the I-team from this particular news outlet that reported on the story delved into Ferguson's driving history, and you will be shocked to find that he's got priors as well. Uh, records show while Ferguson worked for the Cookville Police Department, he damaged his patrol car while driving on black ice, changing lanes, hitting a stop sign, and hitting a mailbox. Uh, he also hit a semi-truck in a separate incident. After that, the department recommended he be terminated or resign, so he resigned and then joined the police department he's at now uh, a couple months later. So that's out of Tennessee. In Virginia, uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe pardoned a guy, well, partially pardoned a guy, uh, on his last day in office. And the, it's noteworthy because the guy's sentence is insane, totally fucking insane. Uh, Trevion Blunt was 15 years old in 2006 when he and two men, both 18, held up a Norfolk house party. No shots were fired and no one was seriously injured. Uh, some marijuana and cell phones were stolen along with cash. If you go through the, uh, the court records, it's $65, two phones, and three joints. Uh, in court documents and interviews... The attorney argued that the co-defendants were more involved in this particular case, with one of them organizing it and the other hitting a person before leaving the party. He described Blunt as a follower, which is what you would expect from a 15-year-old doing something with two 18-year-olds. Uh, the co-defendants cooperated with prosecutors, admitted their involvement in the robbery, and received lesser sentences. Prosecutors offered Blunt a deal that would have resulted in a 14-year sentence, but Blunt turned it down. He insisted he didn't commit all the crimes alleged, and against the wishes of his attorney and family, took the case to trial. Well, a jury convicted him, and a judge sentenced him to six life sentences plus 118 years. So if you think, I can't remember off the top of my head what the median life sentence is for a black male. I want to say it's like 72.2 years or something to that effect. So you got to figure this guy was told that he was going to have six life sentences plus the additional 118. That comes out to like half a millennium in terms of potential service. You know, if I'm doing my math right, it's 551 years. That's fucking nuts. And there's no conceivable way a white guy would have been charged that for a robbery where all you had was $65, uh, some marijuana, and a phone. And, and he's a minor. I mean, we have Supreme Court precedent that says you can't lock up a minor for life without parole. It's just not allowed. So props to Governor McAuliffe, who I generally don't agree with at all on anything politically. He did the right thing there. Uh, out of Washington State in Lakewood, a U.S. District Court judge has upheld a $15 million verdict in the killing of unarmed black man Leonard Thomas. So this case, this is another one of those cases that's just terribly fucked up. So basically, this guy got into a dispute with his wife uh, because one of his friends had been killed. He was drinking because he was depressed. They got into an argument. It wasn't anything serious. Someone called the police for a welfare check because he was concerned that he was going to be suicidal. And his little kid is there with him, and they're trying to, him and his wife are arguing over who the kid is going to go with. So they show up with a SWAT team. They cordon off the entire block. The guy's dad is trying to get there to try and talk to the son and make sure everything is fine. Um, well, I, so it's, it's the little kid. You got the, the guy that died. His son is a little kid. And then the big guy's dad. Uh, so that's the guy that was blocked. So it would be the, the minor kid's grandfather, essentially. So he's blocked from coming by. They're talking to the negotiator. While they're trying to negotiate a resolution, a separate part of the police squad blows open the back door using a charge. 
as they're blowing open the door, that startles the guy. So he moves to go make sure his kid is protected. And that movement, apparently they thought he was going for a gun. So they shot him dead. They also shot the dog dead. He owned a dog. They shot the dog. Three, two different officers shot the dog four different times. And then as he's laying on the as the guy is laying on the ground bleeding, trying to shield his son, he's saying to the officer, don't hurt my boy, as a different officer is busy punching him in the face. It's just a totally fucked up case. Well, anyhow, jury found for the family and awarded a combined $15 million verdict. And the lawyers for the police officers and the city essentially said that you can't have that verdict. It's tainted because these jurors just are, are concerned about their social standing and they couldn't go back to their liberal hippy dippy elite friends and say that they found in favor of a white cop who shot and killed an unarmed black man. So the judge upheld the verdict, denied the motions to have it set aside. And in her opinion, she went really like deep, like she went hard at the attorneys for bringing up the race argument. And I'm going to read you an extended section of her opinion. I'm going to give you the link. The whole opinion is like 89 pages, but I'm going to read you this extended segment of it. She says, quote, defendants argue that before analyzing the governing legal factors about a jury verdict, the court should address the fact that it is clear, and that's in quotes, the jury's decision making was improperly influenced by, quote, sediment in the community about police excessive force against African-Americans. The jury's findings should be discounted, defendants counsel repeated to the court during its December 5th, 2017 hearing on qualified immunity because, quote, what the jury found here is that they weren't going to go back to their individual communities and tell the people that they associate with, we found in favor of white cops that shot an unarmed black man. The court could not more strongly reject defendants' argument. Without any evidence, without any factual foundation whatsoever, defendants have chosen to malign one of this country's most sacred civic institutions, the impartially selected petite jury. Eight individuals interrupted their lives for three and a half weeks of solemn attention to this case. These eight individuals swore to try the matter at issue according to the evidence and the instructions of this court. They listened, they watched, and for five days they deliberated. The suggestion that this jury flouted its charge and colluded to hold government officials liable merely to advance the jurors' individual reputations is not simply frivolous. It is insulting to our constitutional order, and the notion that the American justice system can be characterized by an illegitimate solicitude for black victims of alleged police misconduct is so painfully ahistorical that one wonders whether defendants advance this argument seriously. Apparently, defendants would have the court declare a mistrial at this late stage on the basis of juror prejudice, notwithstanding the fact that the defendant successfully moved to preclude the veneer from viewing a video on unconscious bias, notwithstanding the fact that defendants only used two of their three peremptory challenges, notwithstanding the fact that defendants represented to the court that they accepted the jury as constituted, notwithstanding the fact that defendants never requested a continuance or change of venue, notwithstanding the fact, should it even matter, that none of the jurors were African-American, and notwithstanding the fact that all available evidence suggests each juror conducted himself or herself with integrity and impartiality. The court declines defendants' request. And it goes on from there. So we call that a bench slap in legal parlance. A judge might not be able to cuss you out, but they kind of sort of cuss you out in the form of their opinion. 
uh, out of Wisconsin. So we got a lot of stories from Wisconsin. I apologize. I, I don't, this was not planned. It just kind of happened that way. Uh, in Irma, Wisconsin, the state's now being sued over abusing a 16-year-old inmate. Uh, a group of guards, and this is from the story, says, quote, a group of guards at the state's youth prison broke the arm of an inmate, strip-searched him, left him naked and injured in his cell for hours, and did not provide him medical attention for a week. Uh, apparently, the kid covered up one of the security cameras with a piece of paper, and the guards just beat the shit out of him for sport, even after they got him away from the camera and handcuffed and everything else. Uh, out of Kenosha, taxpayers are going to be paying out $800,000 to settle a lawsuit brought by a transgender student. Uh, Ash Whitaker, a former Tremper High School student, had sued the Kenosha Unified School District in July of 2016 for banning him from the boys' bathroom, subjecting him to daily surveillance, and threatening disciplinary action against him. The story goes on from there. We'll give you the link to it. But a crazy part of it is that high school administrators actually proposed, presumably with a straight face, that, quote, all trans students should wear bright green labels. I, I don't really have anything to say to that. I mean, that's, that's fantastically stupid, reminiscent of the Scarlet Letter or the tattoos for your inmate numbers during the Holocaust. I mean, I don't understand what purpose that would fucking serve. That's just crazy to me. So that's out of Kenosha in O'Donnell, Wisconsin. BuzzFeed has a long read about the death of a Native American boy, Jason Perro. We talked about his case in a prior podcast, but they continue to talk about the treatment of Native Americans generally. Um, from the story, it says, quote, The feeling of sadness and loss is palpable among members of the Bad River Band Indian tribe. But there's also a deep sense of numbness and fatalism here that manifests in the nonchalant ways people talk about other violent encounters involving law enforcement and Native Americans. Jason's death was at least the second time in as many months that a member of the Bad River Reservation had been killed by uniformed officers. Locals have long complained about being pulled over for what they consider no good reason, driving while Indian, they call it. And then there's, quote, the women, unquote, a sort of shorthand that refers to allegations detailed in federal lawsuits that Sheriff Brennan did nothing as one of his jailers repeatedly raped and assaulted Native American women. You've heard about the women, right? Locals say almost between thoughts. So we'll give you a link to that. It's a long read. It's kind of depressing as well. So in terms of per capita numbers, Native Americans are actually the most disproportionate deaths among all the racial groups. So we talk a lot about how the fact that people of color are disproportionately killed. Uh, Native Americans are, in terms of proportion, because there's so few of them, uh, way out of proportion. Police kill them pretty routinely. In Wauwatosa, a teacher, this is another teacher story, issued a homework assignment. And one of the homework assignments was, give three good reasons for slavery. It's so fucking stupid. Who would think that's a good idea? So the question is, and there's a, a picture of the homework assignment in the link, give three good reasons for slavery and three bad reasons for slavery. Of course, this offended people because there are no fucking good reasons for slavery. Uh, from the story says, quote, a homework assignment asked fourth graders at a private school in Wauwatosa to argue why slavery was a good thing. It prompted an apology from the principal of our Redeemer Lutheran School, who said the question wasn't supposed to have an answer because there are no good reasons for slavery. Well, dude, if there's no good reason for it, why would you ask for three? It doesn't make sense to think that there's no good reason intended to be put as the answer there because you wouldn't have asked for three of them. 
you would have said, what's a good reason for slavery? And it could, could have said none. But if you're asking them to come up with three, that implies that you want them to do some brainstorming and think about it. And that's offensive enough to the black kids, I'm sure. But could you imagine the white kids? You got now white kids going home brainstorming with their parents on rationales why slavery was good. That helps perpetuate the problem of fucking racism. So that's out of Wisconsin. Every now and then we do talk about stuff in other countries. We have one in the United Kingdom. So out of London, four police officers wrongfully... God, this is so stupid. Four police officers wrongly arrested a black guy for stealing a bike, even after they were told that a white person did it. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, the original incident occurred in Leather Lane, central London, when three male police officers and a female officer were working early in the evening on a plainclothes anti-cycle theft operation in Camden. They were alerted that a white man wearing a light green jacket and blue jeans had stolen a silver bike in the area. Despite the thief standing near a group of bike couriers chatting after work, the officers instead grabbed, I shouldn't laugh, I apologize. They instead grabbed 47-year-old Andrew Dadu, who is black, wearing a gray jacket, and was on a white bike. The officers threw him to the ground, according to his uh, lawyers Hodge, Jones, and Allen. Dadu was restrained with handcuffs as the thief watched and then rode off on the stolen bike. Jesus Christ. Uh, Akoradodu suffered injuries to his head, legs, knees, and wrists, and needed medical attention. He eventually received a compensation settlement from the police. The officers maintained they did not hear the description of the ethnicity of the suspect. You'd be surprised that that was a lie, uh, because their claim, it was said, was undermined by records in their notebooks that included that the suspect was white. So the end result of all this fuckery was that three of the officers were found to have done nothing wrong, and the fourth officer was admonished for not getting an ethnicity code, even though, again, the ethnicity was written in their notebooks. Uh, so, folks, that is all of the criminal justice fuckery news for this week. Let's go ahead and jump into our Law 140 on Brady versus Maryland. So the reason why we're talking about Brady versus Maryland this week is that the Clive and Bundy case, where you had this rancher out west who basically was allowing his cattle to graze on taxpayer land, uh, taking advantage of something that he's not supposed to be taking advantage of. Uh, They had a standoff with the Bureau of Land Management. A bunch of people showed up with guns and everything else. Well, eventually he was prosecuted for all of this stuff. And that case was declared a mistrial a couple weeks ago, and just this past week, it was actually dismissed with prejudice, meaning the, the uh, government cannot prosecute him again for it. And the basis for that was what are called Brady violations. The judge found that the government repeatedly failed to disclose information to the defense that they should have. So the basis for that at a, at a core level is rooted in our due process guarantees in the United States Constitution. So remember, the second rule of FISC, you always start at the source when you're looking at a case or a statute. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution says, quote, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property 
without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And it's the due process clause that matters there, because even though that amendment has always existed, the reality is that in practice, for most of this country's history, trials were obscenely unfair and and tilted in favor of the prosecution. Defense lawyers argue they're still tilted in favor of the prosecution to this day, but it was even worse back then. You couldn't get hardly anything from the prosecution when you were on trial. You basically had to come up with your own evidence, and if you got surprised by something, oh well. Well, in 1963, you have this case called Brady versus Maryland, and as is often the case with criminal stuff, uh, it's case law developed by people who are serving life in prison or are facing the death penalty because they've got nothing else to do but to appeal their cases. Uh, so in this particular case, uh, there was a John Brady and a Charles Boblet who were both charged with first-degree murder. And Brady had maintained that he participated in the robbery, but not in the actual killing that happened. And at sentencing, both guys got the death penalty. Well, after he had the trial, after he's on death row... Brady finds out that Bob Litt had already confessed to the murder. He admitted that he was the guy that did it, but the prosecution kept that information suppressed. They hid it. They did not turn it over to the defense. So on appeal, Brady is arguing that the prosecution's choice to not turn over Bob Litt's confession violated his due process rights, and because of that, he needed to have a new trial. So this eventually reached the United States Supreme Court, and it's actually a fairly short decision. So it's a 7-2 decision written by Justice Douglas where the Supreme Court says, yes, that's a violation of the Due Process Clause. Uh, In this particular case, they use the 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine. We talked about that in a prior Law 140. Go check that out if you missed it. Uh, But what he says, and again, it's a short opinion. There's an expectation that landmark cases are really long, and sometimes that's true, but you can get through reading Brady in just a couple minutes. Uh, What Justice Douglas writes is, quote, the principle of Mooney versus Hollihan, which is a prior case about the due process clause, is not punishment of society for misdeeds of a prosecutor, but avoidance of an unfair trial to the accused. Society wins not only when the guilty are convicted, but when criminal trials are fair. Our system of the administration of justice suffers when any accused is treated unfairly. An inscription on the walls of the Department of Justice states the proposition candidly for the federal domain, saying, quote, the United States wins its point whenever justice is done its citizens in the courts. A prosecution that withholds evidence on demand of an accused, which, if made available, would tend to exculpate him or reduce the penalty, helps shape a trial that bears heavily on the defendant. That casts the prosecutor in the role of an architect of a proceeding that does not comport with standards of justice, even though, as in the present case, his action is not the result of guile. We now hold that the suppression by the prosecution of evidence favorable to an accused upon request violates due process where the evidence is material either to guilt or to punishment, irrespective of the good faith or bad faith of the prosecution. So today, Brady and the cases after it, this is what we call a, we have cases interpreting a prior precedent. They're often referred to as a line of cases. So you think of a hereditary line. Uh, You know, you inherit from your parents, then your kids inherit from you, and so on down it goes. So the Brady line of cases, the modern rule, is that the prosecution has a duty to learn of and disclose to the defense 
all favorable material information known to the others acting on the government's behalf in the case, including the police. And they're commonly referred to as the, quote, prosecution team, unquote. Uh, So the prosecution has to disclose that information at such a time and in such a manner, quote, as to allow the defense to use the favorable material effectively, which as a practical matter means well before trial, if not at the outset of the case, because, quote, the due process obligation under Brady to disclose exculpatory information is for the purpose of allowing defense counsel an opportunity to investigate the facts of the case and, with the help of the defendant, craft an appropriate defense. So what does all that mean? What is favorable information? What is exculpatory information? Favorable information is any information that the defense can use to assist its defense, in essence. If you can use it offensively, if you can use it defensively, that makes it favorable. Now, favorable information includes both exculpatory evidence, which is evidence that has a tendency to exonerate the defendant. Uh, The magic language is, quote, information of any kind that would suggest to any prosecutor that the defense would want to know about it. That's essentially the sleight of hand the courts have used to explain it. Uh, And then you have impeaching information, which is information that tends to uh, reflect negatively on a witness's credibility. So there's a case of uh, Jiglio versus the United States, where there was a failure to disclose that a witness was given immunity in exchange for his testimony. And the Supreme Court said that that immunity deal needed to have been disclosed to the defense. So in response to Brady and the subsequent Brady cases, you had a lot of states implement what is now called open file discovery. Uh, So for example, in North Carolina, we have a statute for our superior court cases that reads, quote, the state will make available to the defendant the complete files of all law enforcement agencies, investigatory agencies, and prosecutors' offices involved in the investigation of the crimes committed or the prosecution of the defendant. Now, they do that automatically upon a defense attorney making a motion for that. Uh, So even though theoretically a motion is not required under the Constitution, uh, there's a case called Strickler versus Green that lays out what you have to do and making a motion is not actually there. Um, Most of the time, you always have defense attorneys do what are called Brady motions for two reasons. One, if you have a statutory right to discovery like North Carolina's is, you got to file it because it's part of the statute. But in addition, if something is not disclosed, the fact that you filed a motion asking for it helps preserve your ability to, uh, to pursue that on appeal. So what we ask for in these Brady motions is a very long list of stuff. So what I've done is I've taken one of my most recent uh, motions and I've given a list, and it's not quite perfect, so if I misspeak on some of this, it's because I've been cutting and pasting stuff out. Uh, But you ask for, quote, any information that tends to cast doubt on the defendant's guilt with respect to any essential element in any charged count, any physical evidence, testing, or reports tending to make guilt less likely, any information regarding the failure of any percipient witness to make a positive identification of a defendant, any eyewitness's description of the perpetrator which differs from the defendant's appearance, 
an eyewitness's initial inability to provide a description of the perpetrator, any information that links someone other than the defendant to the crime, any information that tends to support an affirmative defense, any information that tends to cast doubt on the admissibility of the government's evidence, any information that tends to support the defendant's pretrial constitutional motions or tends to show that the defendant's constitutional rights were violated, any information that tends to diminish culpability and or support lesser punishment, inconsistent statements by government witnesses regarding the facts of the crime or the alleged conduct of the defendant, statements by others that are inconsistent with statements of government witnesses regarding the facts of the crime or the alleged conduct of the defendant, any information that relates to the potential mental or physical impairment of any witness, any information relating to potential witness bias, including benefits received by a witness, other known conditions that could affect the witness's bias, such as animosity towards the defendant, animosity towards a group of which the defendant is a member or which the defendant affiliated, relationship with the victim, known but uncharged criminal conduct, information that calls into question efforts to present the witness as neutral and disinterested, impeachment information that officers or others have fed parts of a witness's story to the witness during questioning, any information relating to a witness's dishonesty or criminality, including acts of a witness that are probative of untruthfulness, a copy of any criminal record of any witness, including witnesses' prison records and probation records, as well as a written description of any criminal cases pending against any witness, and any information concerning a law enforcement officer's misconduct and or abuse of authority. So if you go back to that, um, I can't remember the episode, but when we talked about California and they have this so-called Brady list, that's what it's referring to. A cop that has a past of misconduct or abuse of authority uh, that becomes a Brady material that is supposed to be turned over. So what has happened as a result of the Brady case is that you have a whole bunch of lawsuits all over the place at every level of government determining what constitutes exculpatory material, what is Brady material that should have been turned over, uh, what are the potential punishments if Brady is violated, and there's just there's a whole bunch of cases. I can't even scratch the surface in this particular Law 140. Um, and they still go on today. So like last year, there's a case, Weary versus Kane, uh, where a guy was murdered back in 1998, and then two years after the murder, the guy who was incarcerated at the time uh, called authorities and pointed the finger at this Michael Weary guy. And turns out that the guy who made the phone call, the jailhouse snitch, if you will, uh, was a friend of the victim. And the account of the story that that guy gave was very different from the actual facts of what happened and the other witnesses. But they arrested this guy anyway. He got convicted anyway. Uh, and it came out after the fact that the prosecutor failed to point out that this jailhouse snitch more or less fabricated everything. Uh, so the Supreme Court, it, it was a per, cur a per curiam opinion, uh, where basically that means it's an unsigned opinion by the court. And they said that this was a violation of Brady. And they remanded the case to have a new trial done because that information could have called into question the verdict. The jury wouldn't have been uh, quite as firm in their conviction that he actually had done it. Uh, so what happens when someone violates Brady? Well, because Brady disclosure goes to the fairness of a trial, a judge has a wide variety of possible remedies to fix it. 
And in North Carolina, these are actually spelled out in statute. And what it says is, quote, if at any time during the course of the proceedings, the court determines that a party has failed to comply with this article or with an order issued pursuant to this article, the court, in addition to exercising its contempt powers, may order the party to permit the discovery or inspection, grant a continuance or recess, prohibit the party from introducing evidence not disclosed, declare a mistrial, dismiss the charge with or without prejudice, or enter other appropriate orders. So essentially this similar uh, scope of judicial authority applies in the federal context. So what you had in the Brady case, or sorry, the Bundy case, God, I've got, got too many Bs going on. What you had in the Bundy case was this systemic systematic failure by the FBI to disclose a lot of information. So we mentioned in the prior podcast last week that the judge found that they had uh, withheld six different types of evidence deliberately, even though they were told to turn stuff over. That included an FBI surveillance camera on a hill overlooking the Bundy Ranch, uh, documents from the U.S. Bureau of Land Management about snipers that were positioned around the place, an FBI log with entries about the snipers on standby, threat assessments that indicated the Bundys weren't violent and that the Bureau of Land Management was deliberately trying to provoke a conflict, uh, 500 pages of internal affairs documents involving the special agent who had since been fired, all of that stuff. The judge looked at that and said, hey, you were supposed to turn this over and you didn't. And she initially declared a mistrial, which was the right call. You stop everything there and you do further analysis. Uh, and then she eventually decided that she was going to dismiss it with prejudice. That's within her power to do. And based on the pervasiveness of the misconduct, it makes sense. You know, I despise the Bundys. I despise what they represent. I despise the people that stand up for them, even though basically this guy was was taking advantage of property that you and I own by virtue of our capacity as taxpayers. Uh, but it was the right call for the judge because the fact is the government has rules they have to follow. It's called the United States Constitution and its amendments, uh, and they didn't do it here. So it was the right result. I've got some stuff I'm going to give you in the show notes. I'm going to give you the Bundy case. I'm going to give you the Jiglio case, Strickland case. Uh, also, there's snippets of the United States Attorney's Manual that have basically codified the, uh, the Brady requirements. I'll give you links to those so you can see how prosecutors are actually taught to comply with Brady. And I'm going to give you a link from the North Carolina School of Government because a guy named John Rubin looks at the history of criminal discovery in North Carolina and the fact that it used to be hotly litigated for a long time, but now that the state has officially done open file discovery, which it didn't actually do until the 1990s, like that's how recent this, this move was. Um, the open file discovery requirement started in 1996, and it wasn't fully expanded to its current form until 2009 when I graduated college. Um, so I'll give you that so you can read through it. It's fascinating if you're into that sort of thing, interesting history on how discovery has panned out in North Carolina. So folks, that's going to do it for this Law 140. That also concludes this podcast. We have somehow managed to keep it under an hour and a half. I consider that a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you all for listening. I hope all of you have a blessed week, and I will talk to you next Monday.